Welcome to the IT Career Energizer podcast. For anyone who wants to build and grow a career in IT, develop and improve your strengths and skills, be inspired and motivated by the successes of others, manage your career progression, and achieve your IT career goals. And now, your host, Phil Burgess. Welcome to episode 180 of the IT Career Energizer podcast. My guest on today's show is a staff operations engineer from Zendesk. He describes himself as a Linux systems geek with a passion for making systems serve great content. And he is a recognized expert in metrics and monitoring about which he speaks, as well as a featured panelist for the Monitoring Scale Live community panel. So welcome to the IT Career Energizer podcast. Jeff Pierce. Hi, nice to speak with you, sir. So, Jeff, could I ask you maybe to give us a bit of an understanding of sort of the metrics and monitoring that you focus and speak about? So, when you're doing effective system administration, the only real way to do that is with really good data about your software. Being able to ask your software questions without having to deploy new code to do it getting decent enough metrics to actually effectively alert and things like that. And I've spent the last few years kind of honing my skills on making sure that companies are able to collect the kind of data that they need in order to make decisions on system scaling, on uh, software optimization and things of that sort. Right. So it's following the principle is that if you can't measure it, you can't improve it or you can't identify where the inefficiencies are taking place. Well, not just that. It's technically, if you can't see what your software and your systems are doing, you're already broken. You just don't know it yet, and you don't know when. Uh, Yes, I see what you mean. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Okay, Jeff, can you perhaps share with us a unique career tip or one that perhaps the audience doesn't know and should? The biggest advice that I have is employers will generally look to pay you a certain percentage over your previous job to prevent them from doing that. Uh, Never share your salary history, uh, especially for U.S. listeners. That's you officially throwing out the first number in a negotiation without you realizing you're doing it. So in order to make sure that you're paid market rate, ensure that that's what you let a recruiter, whether internal or external, know. You want to be paid a market rate, a certain percentage top of the market, like I generally ask or use the line, I'm an A player, I expect A pay, so top 10 percentile, something like that. Then let them negotiate you down to something you're comfortable with, but never throw out the first number unless you're absolutely required to. Interestingly enough, I had that exact conversation with somebody this morning who has actually relocated recently uh, back to the UK and is going through a similar job searching process. And that that is one of the things we actually discussed, the fact that um, it can be a bit of a negative when it comes to negotiation if you give out that information too early. Yeah. In fact, uh, some US states have actually recognized this. The state of Massachusetts actually bars employers now from asking about your salary history. Uh, You can still provide it, but why would you do that? Especially if you're negotiating for a market rate salary. But yeah, no, it's been recognize that this is a point where the employer has a large amount of power over the negotiating prospective employee. And therefore, the law is moving in the direction, at least in the US, of stopping an employer from basing 
your salary off your previous salary because that also spreads inequities like uh, gender pay disparity or pay disparity between you know people of color and people that aren't. Yeah, things of that nature. And so many states are just making so an employer just can't ask you that up front, and it's mainly for those reasons. Well, it's good to hear that those changes are potentially on the horizon. So, Jeff, can you perhaps share with us your worst IT career moment and what you learned from that experience? Sure. It's funny because it's kind of a combination of both worst and best. When I worked at Change.org, if you're not familiar with them, they are a petition site that also works with uh, larger corporations, governmental figures around the world, things of that nature. And basically, the entire point is to use petitions to create public pressure uh, on these corporations, on these governments, on what we call a decision maker, or you know, what we call, I don't work there anymore, obviously, but um, so we try to get those decision makers pressure. So one of those petitions was one to stop the uh, dog eating festival in Yulin province in China. This caught on huge. And this is 2015, I believe, about four years ago. And it created so much data that it uncovered a bug in our Galera MariaDB cluster, which caused it to every node to go into data protection mode. And the part that's bad about a Galera cluster, which is a way for to have multi-master MySQL or MariaDB or something of that nature, is that uh, if all your nodes are down, you don't have a cluster anymore. You have four separate servers. And then we had a fifth arbiter process to break ties, but still. So I had to start keeping up one of the databases. The database that had the most recent information was our fourth of four servers, which I'll refer to as MySQL 4. Uh, MySQL 4 eventually became what was serving almost the entire site during this because we had uncovered a bug in MariaDB that actually required their consultants to whip up a patch for it. So it was a matter of keeping the site online. So on one hand, it's the worst situation you're in because you have to just maintain, you cannot actually fix a problem. And uh, if you know any engineers, when they've seen a problem and they can't actually fix it, that's a terrible day. Yes. So the other problem that came along with this is while I'm running on roughly one quarter of my database power, we are getting four times the amount of traffic the site has ever seen at peak. So we are setting new records at four times peak traffic. I'm 16 times screwed <laughs> with a quarter of my database power. Yes. And it was very much just a lot of long nights, you know, 16 hour shifts. I volunteered to take the night shift since my sleeping schedule can be described as, um, crazy at best, but it's one of the best times because, you know, it's times like that, that really show how good of a team you're on because you can't manage something like that alone. You have to rely on your teammates. You can't be awake 24 seven to, to babysit this server and ensure that it stays up. And sometimes you have to sit there and you've had three hours sleep and you've been up for 16 hours and you're talking to a vendor and a consultant just trying to figure out what's going on because it turns out that, uh, you know, we had multiple issues. There was the bug in MariaDB. There was some of the instances of running MySQL hadn't been touched since they were originally set up. And by that, I mean, one of the instances of MySQL was running in screen rather than daemonized on the original MySQL server, MySQL one, which was the proof of concept that apparently before my time just went into production, which can happen in, 
you know, smaller startups, especially if you're just trying to get something off the ground and you're working with a limited budget like change.org. And, you know, and the cleanup after that was some of the best time for working there because anything that I wasn't really aware of when I went back and, you know, did an audit on what happened, how can we prevent this and did a root cause analysis, you learn a whole lot about the systems that you normally wouldn't because I never really had a reason to go through and perform any kind of forensics or troubleshooting on this database before. And it was good to actually, you know, get your hands dirty, learn another one of the company secrets for better or for worse, and be able to document and or correct that. So it was really the best time because I learned a whole lot about databases and database clustering. I learned a whole lot about the team that I worked on and that was filled with amazing people. And it was kind of the worst time because you just can't, you, you're looking at a problem and you can't fix it. And all you're doing is just the best to kind of keep it running. You know, you're pulling out all the tricks in your operations handbook, trying to keep this database up and trying to make sure that there's at least a backup of this data somewhere that's not actually crushing your database while it's taking the backup. Yeah. So how long did that last? How long were you um, effectively just trying to support something that you know knew was broken? Uh, the database issue uh, lasted roughly five days, at which point we were able to at least start finishing state transfers to other servers. Um, they would still go down, but we would at least keep enough database power going to where I could at least get two or three running at the same time until they actually patched. Yep. I presume you got quite efficient as well as bringing servers back up. Uh, yeah, I learned a lot about how uh, Galera does its uh, state transfers, because there's two of them. There's uh, an incremental state transfer, which if your database, you know, if the data in your database wasn't corrupted when it crashed, that would make it uh, where it would only have to transfer the data that wasn't recorded from the master to the uh, database once it was hooked back up. Part of the reason why we were having trouble doing that was it turns out that if you have a minor version mismatch in your in a backup script, then uh, yeah, that can make it so it will always do a complete state transfer, which when you're talking about a multi-terabyte database, yeah. takes quite a while to come up. So <laughs> in cases where we had to do the full state transfer, yeah, we're looking, we were looking at six, seven hours from the beginning of the transfer to when the database actually synced up and was available for reads and writes. Yeah, that's a long time, but it happens. Okay, so moving away from your worst moment, can you perhaps tell us about your career highlight or greatest success? I would say that the uh, my career highlight was when I deployed the first piece of code that I had really had a hand in writing into production, which was, an, again, also at change.org, and that was uh, my open source Casabon software, which I hate graphite as a whole. Graphite as far as... Uh, maintaining a graphite ring and having to expand it when you're having storage problems, pain in the butt as far as I'm concerned. And that's why I made Casabon. It is written in Go and it acts as a carbon collector. And uh, instead of storing uh, through Whisper files or Ceres or something like that, where you have to manage your graphite ring, it would actually store the stats in Cassandra, which, you know, as a NoSQL database, very, very easily scalable. So I was really, really happy the day that uh, that went into production and we turned that on and I saw stats and, you know, stats coming into Cassandra and, you know, all the graphs that we had set up in Grafana starting to populate with the data. Then the second that it was ready to go, 
I'd had a, you know, agreement at change that we were going to open source this because it wasn't secret sauce for the company. And, uh, yeah, to see it one work in production, in our environment, and then two go open source and see uh, other companies try it out. You know, that's a great feeling, especially when you come to DevOps from the ops side of things and pick up dev along the way rather than vice versa. Have you had much feedback yourself? Have you had much feedback in terms of other companies using it? I know at one point PlayStation Network tried to use it. I don't think it ended up being a fit for them as other talks that I've seen where they ended up making a way more complicated uh, pipeline due to the... uh, a mass amount of stats they have, they ended up using a queuing system in Kafka. And it's a very, very interesting implementation, but it wasn't Casabon. As far as I know, uh, Change.org recently moved away from it, which is good because Datadog does a lot of things better than I do at all nowadays. Not an endorsement, it's just the truth. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, not only that, uh, the another flaw in Casabon that cropped up is that while it is much easier to expand your storage, storing a stat in Cassandra without doing any kind of compression leads to the stats being anywhere from five to 10 times the size as when stored in graphite. So until I get around to uh, implementing a bit of compression on that, and I'm looking at Facebook's uh, Gorilla compression specifically around uh, time series items. Yeah. That's some interesting I wouldn't things. even recommend using the software. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of things you look at, but right now I would say, you know, as much as I love Casabon, it's a little outdated. Don't use it. Let me uh, get some patches on it. But <laughs> um, what ha- what has happened, and by releasing that, is one, as far as energizing a career, nothing nothing looks better on a developer's sheet than, hey, look at this thing I wrote. You can run get blame against it. You can prove that I wrote at least some of this code. I was confident enough in it to open source it. And... It's been something that I've mentioned in every interview that I've had since, and it's always been rather impressive to the hiring manager because a lot of people write software, uh, a lot of people write open source, a lot of people contribute to it, but not many people actually take an idea and run with it, which is you know, another big piece of advice to give anyone is if you are passionate about a project and this isn't you're passionate about work, you know, you'll do what you love, blah, 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 whatever, it still works. But if you're passionate about a project, uh, you do give your best work. And, you know, one of the keys is when you are trying to build a portfolio or trying to establish your developer credentials, even if you are experienced in something else like I was, like systems administration, and one of the best things you can do is tackle a problem. And you are going to feel dumb. It's going to take a while to learn. It's like learning an instrument. I play guitar on the side. And when you're learning to play guitar, you know, you're just sitting there going, I can only play one note at a time. I don't know what I'm doing. I keep practicing. I'm doing my scales. Holy crap, I can play a song. It was very much like that with me with uh, learning to code, which is I can't do this. What does a struct do? I can't get this to compile. Holy crud, it runs. Yep. Anyway, circling back to the original question, it was just the most amazing feeling to see that code and go, I have something that this company now relies on running. Yep. And... It came out of my head and it was my work with it. Casabon's case with another individual with some of my later software, I tend to be a little bit siloed with it. So it's mine, but either way, that amazing feeling of just going something that came from my brain now makes this company better. Exactly. This organization better. And that's just an amazing feeling that is very, very tough to replicate because it's, you know, this mix of achievement and creativity and all of these things that, you know, at least for me, that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why I 
am in the industry is because I like solving puzzles. And that's at the end of the day, what I get to do for a living, whether it's with code or whether it's with system magic. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, um, I think as, as you say, I think um, if I think almost use the word passion, it's not quite right, but it's certainly able to use your interest to be able to deliver something, particularly when it's related to a project. Yeah. And especially, you know, I'm, Personally, I'm on the autism spectrum. So if, you know, computers weren't a, a lucrative career, I would really, really be screwed because I'm not really good at anything else outside of video games and music. And uh, those those do not pay the bills nearly as well. <laughs> no. um, but but yeah, it, it, it's just nice to see that this thing that, you know, I've been playing with computers since literally I was four years old and my dad bought a 286 leading edge from computer land that had a... 40 megabyte hard drive and 640k RAM, which Bill Gates said was more than you'd ever need in a lifetime. Heck, that was 10 times the memory that we went to the moon with. Yeah. And getting to play with that. And, uh, you know, my interest really got sparked when it turned out was due to a money constraint. Namely, my dad couldn't afford to keep fixing this computer every time I would break it. Because while I was a, you know, very smart child. I could read it too. I was also autistic and therefore still just like to make, you know, funny things appear on the screen, which Deltree did really well, <laughs> you know? Yep. So at one point after my dad purchased this and had taken it in to get it repaired for, I believe the second or third time, he brought it home and he had the big thick manual that came with these leading edge IBM PC clones and said, he handed it to me and said, I cannot afford to keep getting this computer fixed. If you break it, you have to fix it. Otherwise, you just can't use it. So if I have to take it in again, you're going to be grounded from it. And so I learned to fix that computer. <laughs> yes. And uh, needless to say, uh, it ended up, you know, that that curiosity and, you know, thankfully being the thing that I really, really geek and can hyper-focus on being computers, you know, it ended up becoming a career in which I took a very non-traditional route to getting to because I... Uh, I graduated high school with a 2.27 GPA. I dropped out of college, and the college I did do was for pre-law political science, not computing. So I really ended up backing into the industry back when you were really able to, to be honest. So, Jeff, what excites you about the future of the IT industry and careers in IT in particular? Well, one, it's going to be everywhere. I mean, it's, it's kind of cliche to say software is eating the world, but show me that that's a wrong statement. It's very true. You know, whether or not they'll actually turn a profit, Uber has absolutely disrupted short-term transportation and even some mid to long-term logistics just from brute forcing the traveling salesman problem with rideshare. You know, you see companies like Amazon uh, who have made systems administration and, you know, putting a product out on the internet for people to use so, so easy. And, you know, as compared to, you know, when I first got in to systems administration, just after the dot-com bust, you know, if you had one sysadmin for every 50 servers, you were really doing well as a company. Uh, by the time I got to Apple in 2011, if you could have one sysadmin for every couple thousand servers, you were doing really well. And then nowadays with uh, AWS and the ease of instances, no one has asked me in an interview for a long time, what's the largest environment you've managed? Because it's considered implicit that if you have AWS or Google Cloud or Azure on your resume, that you know how to deal with 
very, very elastically scalable systems. And so the number doesn't matter so much as do you know the software to make it work yeah. nowadays. And what excites me is the fact that even as the need for the old school sysadmin that didn't do much more than bash has kind of fallen away that as that has fallen away due to automation, there is a place to code that automation. Uh, there's a place to measure uh, what the infrastructure is doing now that it's more code-based than hardware-based for many businesses. And just the fact that no matter what doors close in IT as a whole, there always seems to be another door opening. You know, user, end users always need technical support no matter how smart the devices get. You know, which was my start in the industry was tech support for a dial-up ISP in rural Texas. So you can imagine some of the stories I have from that. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, you know, end users will always need help with the product. You know, no matter how much gets automated or done by robots, there's always going to need to be the geek behind the scenes to run the automation, to maintain the robots, to build the robots, to even think of the automation that they want to build in the first place. AI can't do that yet. It might get there someday, but right now there's still a, a huge, huge opportunity for anyone that wants to learn either, you know, computer repair or production engineering and anything in between. So there's just, there's so much opportunity and so many technologies that really move our lives forward coming forth. That just doesn't happen without an IT administrator behind the scenes to make sure that everyone can log into the things they need to without a Salesforce administrator to ensure that the company can continue to get leads without your production engineering to make sure the site stays up without your feature development to make sure that, you know, these ideas that are coming out of your designers heads are turning into an actual product. There's just so much opportunity that I don't know how you, someone can look at the industry and just not be excited for the future of it. Yeah. No, that's great. I think you're right. I think there's so much potential. And of course, we just don't know what it will look like in a few years' time. We couldn't have predicted where we are now um, 10 years ago. I know. If, if, if you'd have asked me, you know, what's going to be the next big thing in 10 years, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have said that a new implementation of Solaris zones known as containers would be the next big thing because now it's on Linux. And I mean, at the end of the day, you look at what a container is, is at its ultimate core, it's a truth jail. It's something that we've been using to isolate programs for many, many years or doing, or like I said earlier, you know, Solaris zones was a great way of splitting a system. So where it would only use a certain amount of resources, you know, what Docker did was make it so that this was suddenly accessible to uh, your junior sysadmins, as well as your senior ones that knew how to properly implement a true jail and properly set all the permissions and ensure that, uh, you know, everything is in the true jail that's needed. Docker does this all by default and then lets you hand it over to developers and say, I tell you what, if you can build it in this environment, I can guarantee it'll work in production. No more work finding DevOps problem now. None of that anymore using that. And I could never have predicted that that was going to be the next big thing. If you would have asked me, I would have thought that it would be more uh, parallel computing. We'd see more systems with a bunch of ARM cores doing small tasks in what's now basically GPU handles that instead, you know, with stuff like Tensor and AI and things like that. I would have thought that it would have been multiple ARM cores rather than the GPU becoming, uh, you know, a big shot again. Yeah. Uh, things like that. 
Okay, we're going to go into the reveal round now. We're going to find out a little bit more about you and the way you think. Are you ready for this? Let's do it. So what first attracted you to a career in IT? Uh, The fact that I was a huge computer geek and I liked breaking my computer and then figuring out how to fix it. Yes. Um, And at the end of the day, like I said earlier, I get to solve puzzles for a living. And that is the essence of any IT career, no matter what end of it you're on, is you're going to be given a set of problems and a set amount of time to solve it. Have fun. Yep. And what is the best career advice you've ever received? The best career advice I ever received was actually from my dad, and it had a little bit more to do with education than advice. And that was, he told me, I don't care if you go to college, but if you don't, you learn a trade. He was an auto mechanic. Uh, After he couldn't do it physically anymore, he taught auto mechanics. He's retired based off of learning this trade. He never went to college, except for his his teaching credential later on. Um, And I've always approached working doing the job that I do like a trade because I don't have a formal education. And so I have to practice at it and I have to, you know, ensure that, you know, I have my tool set that I enjoy using much like an auto mechanic. And honestly, when you're fixing someone's computer, it's very much like fixing a car. And that is you are taking a piece of machinery or electronics that someone is intimidated by and does not fully understand how it works. And they are trusting you to return it to them in the shape that they expect. And much like an auto mechanic, if you don't do it right the first time, they'll never trust you again. Yeah, that's true. Make sure that when you're doing this, you're practicing it as a trade and you do need to practice Um, especially if you're trying to break in because you have to be able to show a, you know, a recruiter or a hiring manager what you can do and the problems you can solve. And conversely, what is the worst career advice you've ever received? Uh, The worst career advice I ever received was uh, stay at least one year at a company because success is very, very much based on the situation that you're in. I am an extremely successful engineer. Uh, I've also been fired, like straight up, you weren't doing the job good enough, fired. And that's not so much a problem with me. Well, I mean, it kind of was. I was, you know, I was fighting depression at the time, which I like to talk about because a lot of us deal with that. And it caused my work to drop. But this can happen. If you are not a fit for a company, identify that and don't stay. Yeah if you're in a position that is, is teaching you something and you enjoy and you're getting interesting work or at least work that's teaching you something, you know, stay, stick around, put in your year, vest that first piece of stock or get that resume bullet that says you've been there a year, but don't stay in a situation that isn't good for you or good for the company just to have that year on your resume. Nowadays, all a hiring manager is going to do is ask you, so why was this such a short period? You're in the office having this interview with them, they've already seen your resume. That's the clue that they're already fine with it. So your answer to that isn't particularly important as long as you don't say, well, I just didn't like them and screw them and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yes. Just give a decent reason. Like it just wasn't a fit yep. or, you know, I wasn't learning anything there or we had a disagreement between what I was actually hired to do and just give an explanation. You know, I've been hired twice since that firing. And both times I've disclosed in the interview that I got fired because I have a story why, and it leads back into a passion I have about talking about mental health in the industry. 
If you were to begin your IT career again in today's world, what would you do? I would go to a code boot camp. Despite some of the hate, and I'm going to just put it that way, that you see from experienced developers talking about people who've gone to a code camp, um, some of the brightest people that I've worked with, and more specifically, some of the brightest women that I have worked with, have come out of uh, a cat. You know, some of the the coding schools like Hackbright Academy or Hack Reactor or General Assembly or something like that. And I would take one of those engineers who are excellent, amazing people and can also, you know, meet a minimum level of coding uh, over the most brilliant butthead, asshole, whatever you want to call them or edit for the podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you know, I, I would, I would rather take someone like that, who is a good person, who's going to work hard and who I know meets a minimum skill level than the brilliant person who I can't work with. But you know, the opportunity is there. Everyone needs coders. You know, there's not enough of us. This is why, you know, we get paid what we do. And Going to code school goes back to the advice I got earlier, which is it teaches you how to code as a trade because getting a CS degree is awesome. But unless you're doing actual research computer science or you're in on one of the cutting edge fields like AI or you know neural networking or something like that, you're going to mostly waste that education because your first job is probably going to be either working on a mobile API or a website no one's going to care particularly much about your algorithms because this is Ruby. It's slow to begin with. And what they care about is your ability to produce something, not so much your ability to produce something fancy. And it's nothing against a college education. Uh, if that's how you like doing things, I highly recommend it, especially to break into the field today. But if you're like me, where school just isn't your thing, whether it's due to ADHD or you're autistic like me or something like that, a code school is really, really one of the best ways to go to get your foot, at least in the programming side of the industry. If you're looking at a different side of the industry, like say uh, systems repair or you know help desk or something like that, break your computer, break it all the time, figure out the funny ways that you can break it. Now that we have cloud backup and all of these things to protect data, there's no reason why you should, why someone should be afraid to break their computer as long as they're properly backed up. And that's how you learn how to fix things, is to break it in interesting ways. And what career objectives are you currently focusing on? Well, right now, I've started bringing up my uh, my internet presence again. I've started tweeting quite a bit more, especially when I noticed that my timeline uh, really only consisted of me griping at companies over Twitter. And I probably <laughs> ought to fix that. So yeah. but the main career objective besides, you know, getting back out into the public and speaking again is it's twofold. One is having gotten to a post senior position, I'm really looking for an opportunity to mentor people, which is one of the reasons why I'm appearing here. Yep. I enjoy that part of the job. I enjoy being able to teach someone and then see them succeed uh, with either the information that I've given them or just direction that I've, that I've been able to impart and, you know, that's a very exciting portion of my job. The other thing is that uh, I'm looking to become a better developer because like I said earlier, I have come into this DevOps by the route that most people don't. Most people get into systems automation and DevOps coming from the dev side and they've had to learn ops because they're at a startup or, you know, 
something like that. Whereas I come from the op side and only learned code in 2011, which is you know half my career instead of the whole thing, because no one was asking for regular systems administrators anymore. They wanted ones that could code or at least write Puppet or Chef or one of the domain-specific languages, if not a full programming language. And so I'm a very, very, very you know senior experienced systems administrator. And if I were to describe my development skills, I'd say they were you know mid-level to senior. So that's something that I can really improve on is continuing to write code and becoming better at that. And what's the number one non-technical skill that has helped you in your career so far? Soft skills, to be quite honest. Um, being autistic, I've you know it took me a while to uh, understand how to, as I call it, people effectively. You know, I've had to teach myself that uh, if you're talking with someone, people enjoy being looked in the eyes. If you're autistic, uh, looking someone in the eyes is just not going to happen. But if you look at their forehead, it's close enough. I was very happy when I worked at Apple. They put me through a public speaking program, uh, which is why I'm comfortable appearing on a podcast or getting up in front of people and talking. And those skills have really come in handy. I've on a lot of teams, I've become known as the person with the soft skills. And I just say that because they're categorized at that, not because they're any easier than the hard skills we think of, uh, especially for, you know, people who are geeks and introverted or, you know, have ADHD or are on the autism spectrum, which we, you know, there's obviously a lot of people like that in this industry. And sometimes just forcing yourself to people like, you know, my wife and I, we, we will host board game nights at home because it's an opportunity for me to not only one, have fun with friends, but two, I get to navigate a crowd of 20 people. And I, learn to not get nervous in that situation. I learn how to talk with people and ask them questions and answer questions back and not dominate a conversation. Those soft skills are needed so much more than ever in this industry now because no one wants to work with the brilliant butthead. They want to work with someone who is going to respect them, who is going to be able to communicate effectively with them. And, you know, more than anything else, you can have all the technical skills in the world, but if you can't articulate what you're going to do, why you want to do it, how you're going to implement it, when it's going to be done, and who is responsible for it, you're not ever going to get put in a lead position in a huge project. They're going to let someone else lead it while you implement. So if you want to be able to move into either a technical or human leadership role, then you really need to be able to speak clearly, articulate your needs, not be afraid to speak up, but also learn when to listen as well. And that's a really hard balance. Nobody teaches that. You have to figure it out on your own. And what do you do to keep your own career energized? I like to take on side projects where I learn something. You know, my two passions outside of work are music and video games. So I've decided that I want to learn how to program in C sharp because that's what the unity game engine uses. And ultimately my goal uh, is to start my own video game company. I left Apple to make video games. It was a bucket list. item to have my name in the credits of a triple a video game. I made that happen. I worked with a company called gazillion. The game was called Marvel heroes. It's uh, no longer online anymore, but you know, I was listed there as senior tactical operations staff, and that was a huge bucket list item. But like most games, I got laid off pretty soon after the game launched. And so 
rather than going and trying to navigate a very volatile industry like games, I've decided that when I go back to it, it's going to be my own game with my own studio. And if I'm going to do that, I'm going to need to learn how to effectively code at least a proof of concept video game if I'm going to try to get something funded. And so therefore, in this case, you know, it's me pricing for video game, but I'm always practicing something. You know, when I was learning to code, I was taking code challenges uh, across different sites uh, on the net, which are great for if you've run out of ideas of your own for an app to practice writing, uh, take a code challenge, stuff like that. Make sure to network with people who are also successful because, again, you're, you're, if you're listening to this, you're probably pretty smart. You're looking to get into an IT career. There's actually a really nice feeling when you think you're the dumbest person in the room, surprisingly, you know, because I've been in cases where I felt like I'm the smartest and the best work situations I'm in is where I felt like I'm the dumbest because that means I have a ton to learn and I have a ton yes. to make myself better with. And that constant challenge of don't get comfortable, keep seeking out something harder is that's how I keep myself up to date on the latest stuff when I could sit on my laurels at this point and, you know, take care of my one piece of infrastructure, never really worry about anything else, but that will make it so that this is as high as I've climbed on the career ladder and I'm not ready to stop here yet. I, I'm still in my thirties and, you know, despite the fact that Silicon Valley tries to put us out to pasture at 40, that's happening <laughs> less and less just due to the fact that there's not enough technical talent, you know, in the world mainly yes. at this point. Exactly. So your career, you don't have to escape to management to survive being 40 years old and looking for a job. Individual contributors uh, like myself, a lot of companies are giving us direct career paths that have nothing to do with management ever. I mean, IBM is the uh, quintessential example with the fact that you can be a technical leader without leading humans still have a budget and be all the way up to technical fellow or distinguished fellow, which, you know, has the same pull as a vice president or an executive vice president and companies that are able to do that and keep individual contributor from going to management because there is a, uh, there is a career path forward. Zendesk is one of those companies. It's why I like working there, but finding one of those companies, if you want to stay an individual contributor that lets you grow and lets you touch new things is, is a big deal. It really is. And what do you do in your spare time away from technology? As I mentioned earlier, I play guitar and bass. And, you know, when I was a teenager, I played in punk rock bands. And uh, now I mostly just record some solo stuff. I write a lot of music, not a ton of lyrics. But uh, anytime I get an idea like that, I, I record. It's a chance to practice and it's a chance to be able to critique my own playing. Uh, the other is video games. I'm a huge video game nerd. Give me a good role-playing game or strategy game, uh, especially, you know, something like uh, Civilization or uh, Crusader Kings that uh, I've had friends aptly describe as spreadsheet simulators. Um, but yeah, give, give me a game where I've got a whole lot of knobs and, and buttons to push and things to keep track of in my head and I'll be happy for hours. Yeah. So gaming is a big part of my life. Um, unfortunately, thanks to uh, some certain gamers on the internet, uh, I don't like to identify as one so much anymore. But, you know, video games is a big part of my hobby time. And, you know, I just, I actually just put a, 
a RTX 2080 Ti in my my Windows gaming computer, and oh my gosh, is that pretty! I can finally do a uh, 4K at 60 frames a second, and I'm super excited about that. <laughs> yes, uh, Jeff, can you share a parting piece of career advice with the IT career energizer audience? The biggest piece of advice I can give at this point is find a mentor because a mentor is going to give you so many more pieces of advice on top of that and is going to be someone you can model both your work uh, and your career after. Um, There is a second piece of advice that I want to give, and it's how I've gotten every job so far, which is if it says it's required on the job description, it probably isn't. Apply when you meet half of them. Uh, I have never met every required requirement for a job that I have applied for in my career. Uh, again, most of the time, I've only met half of them. Don't worry. That's how most people are. Yeah. Uh, you'll probably still get the interview as long as you uh, you know, you know, present the reason why you would like the interview, why you would like to work at this company as you're being introduced or part of your cover letter or something like that. And then just a real quick third one is make sure that you're networking. I got my job before last because I know Corey Quinn. I said that I was looking for work. He introduced me to a bunch of people. One of them turned into a job. So, you know, make sure that you are networking because just like any other field, as much as we would like to say that IT is a meritocracy, it might be to get into it, but once you're into it, uh, a lot of it comes down to who you know. Yes. And you're going to get more jobs from who you know than what you know, guaranteed. Yeah. That's that's a sort of relationship thing that develops throughout your career. And I think the the further you are in your career, the more your network actually helps you in your career development. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, you know, it was very difficult to get it started. But going out and giving a talk on something at a conference that, you know, might not be a big one, but hey, it was fun going to Tel Aviv and talking. Because, you know, me, I can't just do things easy. No, I have to go give my first, you know, public talk ever in a country where English is not the first language. So, you know, go hard mode. But, you know, that was my opportunity to speak. And, yeah, I paid out of pocket to go. It was a lot of money. But, one, it was a cool trip. You know, Tel Aviv is a beautiful city. I suggest that uh, everyone take a visit if they can. But on the other one was that I got to speak and that's how I met, you know, Corey Quinn. And that's how I had dessert spilled on me by charity majors. And that's how... (laughs) You know, when I interviewed once for Facebook, the person giving me the code exam was the person that I was scheduled opposite of uh, giving talks where uh, he was from Facebook and he was talking about how they did storage. And I was from change.org and was talking about how we got simple stats in a company that just hadn't had them in there yet. Yeah. And uh, but you get to meet all of these people and hear all of these ideas. And, you know, some of them are really good. And some of them are people throwing out ideas and seeing if they stick. But honestly, that's how a lot of the industry works is, I think this might be a good idea. Let's test it with a company. But getting out of your comfort zone, and no one's going to tell you that you're a domain expert on something, you need to learn it, and you need to go out and speak up for yourself. Uh, No one is going to toot your own horn, especially because in an IT career, no one will really notice you unless things are broken, unless you toot your own horn. And that's, that's very, very important. It is. And finally, what's the best way we can find out more about you and connect with you? Well, uh, I am on Twitter as at the Technomancer. The E in the is a three. 
You can also uh, see my LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash Jeff R. Pierce. And then I also keep a a rarely updated blog at almostinteresting.net. If you'd like to email me, my email is jeff at almostinteresting.net. I am happy to answer questions from your audience uh, if they have any more that they would like me to expound on that we just don't have time for in this interview. But I love talking shop and I love mentoring. And so, you know, if you're listening and you're interested and you have more questions, please feel free to email me, jeff at almostinteresting.net. I generally answer within 48 hours. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been great chatting with you. Yeah, it's been great talking shop with you as well. Thanks for having me. A quick thank you again to my guest on today's show for sharing their career tips, advice, and experiences. You'll find a show notes page for today's episode on the IT Career Energizer website, which will be itcareerenergizer.com slash e, and then the number of today's episode. Now that there are three new episodes of the show every week, make sure that you're subscribed to the show so you don't miss out. And don't forget to join the new IT Career Energizer community group in Facebook. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would be great to hear from you and to learn about your own career journey, your successes, opinions, and thoughts on the future of the industry. Thanks for supporting the show. And remember, if you're not growing your career, you're slowing your career. Thanks for listening to the IT Career Energizer podcast. To find out more about building a successful career in IT, visit itcareerenergizer.com.